Welcome, my friends, to the podcast that never ends, where we gather our clan and talk about peace and love in our lives, the difficulties along the journey, and how we rise up. We will experience a little thing I call cluberty together, find our sweet spot, and planting our seeds to watch them grow in our magic garden. I'm Uncle Dave, and our transformation starts right here. Hey now, and how are you doing? Want to welcome you to the next episode of Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat. Today's guest is Frank Romeo. He's a very special man who I've met a bunch of times. And when till you hear, wait till you hear his story. His story is one that will inspire you not only as you are presently, but also when you start thinking about the bigger communities. Now, Frank, how you doing? I'm good. Thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your time and appreciate your service. So one of the amazing things about Frank is he was a Vietnam veteran. He still, well, he still is a Vietnam veteran. And we'll let him explain what, what that meant to him. But I, why he's on as a guest today is he just launched a documentary called Walk with Frank. And that's, of course, who else would he be walking with? But the challenge is he's, the walk is related to PTSD and how veterans and non-veterans deal with PTSD, though Frank focuses on uh, veterans, all, a lot of the things that he teaches and speaks about can be dealt with, with from everybody who's dealing with PTSD. Now, Frank, how'd you get started? Because one, let, let, let's explain to the audience, one, how you walked across, we're going to talk about how you walked across New York as a 70-year-old man. I don't know how many younger people could walk across New York, starting in Buffalo in the middle of the winter. So. Right. Well, first, to get that out of the way, why just start in February? And uh, I do education programs. So students uh, throughout New York State and really a lot, of, a lot of places throughout the country were following me as a lesson plan. So I would, I would post every day. I'd put up videos, selfie videos. Um, I had a camera crew following me. Uh, we went into homeless shelters, and the concept was to get the walk finished. I had to make it from Buffalo downstate to Long Island to my hometown of Bay Shore. Uh, approximately, I zigzagged across the state. New York State is not 750 miles wide, but we zigzagged across the state uh, to get that out of the way. Also, people question, you know, New York is not that big. Well, it, no, it's not. But if you zigzag to for strategic reasons, um, so we covered that amount of miles. And um, the idea was to finish up by June before the end of the semester. And basically, so the students could could finish up early in June. So I started actually started uh, February 22nd and I finished up the welcome home. Last two miles was June 8th. And um, and and so uh, it was it was cold. <laughs> I, I can't imagine. I know I've been upstate New York uh, during the winter, and that isn't fun. But you walked it. So let's, again, I want to really reemphasize that he walked this. That he treated himself as a homeless veteran, as a homeless person through this walk. And how come you chose that instead of just making these I, stops? Yeah, I registered with the Homeless Coalition as a homeless veteran. Um I wanted I wanted to be able to get into the shelters. I wanted to be able to uh, touch base with our homeless community, uh, not just veterans, but but 
the general homeless community. I wanted to be able to give them a voice. Basically, you know, let them tell their story. And, and it was focused around post-trauma, around PTSD. And the, they opened up. Um, I'm one of the longest living veterans diagnosed at 100% PTSD from the government. So it's over 50 years for me now. From the 60s right up until now, um, I'm the highest rated uh, mental health category PTSD that the government identifies. And I've been that for 50 years now. And so I approached it as one of them. I approached it as I'm not a doctor or a clinician. I didn't go to college. I don't have a degree, but I suffer post-trauma. And, and so at that, that said, they seem to feel more relaxed. They seem to open up to me. And so I decided that I would make the journey living in shelters as best I could. Not every town has a shelter. Uh, eating in soup kitchens, not every town, you know, throughout New York State offers these services. And um, and it was interesting um, to find the they welcomed me. They welcomed uh, my crew. They they sat for interviews. They told their story and we gave the homeless a voice. We gave post-trauma a voice. And the documentary is is about that is the story of PTSD from its inception in the 60s right up through when I, I suffered, I, I had, I was traumatized in the sixties, right up until today and his diagnosis and treatment. And, um, and we unravel that the film peels back the levels of post-trauma and the emotional history of our country. We, we, we talk about, you know, what it was like and, and the mental health in the sixties and the mental health in the seventies and what was ordered, uh, offered. And, uh, and we right up until today, we have programs in every town in America has programs for, for veterans and mental health. But it wasn't always like that. And, and um, we didn't always have PTSD. Um, people take it for granted. It's a household word now. Well, it wasn't a household word in the 90s. Uh, and it wasn't a, it certainly wasn't even thought about in the 60s and 70s and 80s. Uh, we were called Vietnam War Syndrome. We were called uh, shell shock. We were called, you know, depressive neurosis. I was diagnosed as as depressed the two decades, and I was medicated as depressed when, in fact, I certainly wasn't depressed. And, uh, you know, but this is unraveling. The, the documentary unravels that story and and the emotional journey of our country to today and, and how we see it today. Yeah, no, I know one of the comments that you made during the documentary is we've always had it as a country. And I know I've experienced it because my grandfathers who fought in World War II separately came back. Uh, at one point, one grandfather had uh, was a sergeant and he sent somebody up and who didn't come back. And he was like, I'll keep, you know, shooting whatever you need to do, but don't make me be responsible for sending another person out. And right. eventually they sent him back uh, to Camden in Jersey to be a, a drill instructor instead rather than and take him off the lines. And my other grandfather was a cook. And when you're not cooking, you know, whatever that meant it, it, as you're moving in during world war two, uh, one of your jobs was to remove the bodies that were either injured or, or hurt. And that he came back. And I know you spent a lot of time at St. Albans. So did my grandfather and my mother visited him many years because again, those 40s, 50s, and 60s, it was just, yeah. okay, 
it's you that's the problem, not the situation that you ex- endured uh, being the problem. Correct. Correct. It's it's interesting because, you know, I'm I'm the product of, you know, the greatest generation. I'm a product of World War Two. And we were we were taught to man up. We were taught to, you know, take it, you know, and, and move on and and be, and men don't cry. You know, that type of, of mentality. And then came, you know, the Vietnam War and, and the post trauma and the country turning its back on us. And so we had none of these outlets. There were no outreach programs like there were today. And so, you know, we buried it and we and we pushed those feelings and emotions deep down inside because we had no outlet for it. And it, it, it festered and it, it erupted in the 90s. And it was kind of the perfect storm, if you will. You know, we 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 had that coming off the greatest generation, that mentality of manning up. Uh, then we have a war. Uh, then we have a society that's that's a, not really welcoming us home. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we go underground. Then we, you know, we keep our feelings buried in emotions for decades and then it explodes, you know, the dam burst. So it was kind of the perfect storm and to create this beautiful thing we have today of PTSD diagnosis and treatment. And we recognize it. So it was kind of the ends justified the means. And we had to go through that that horrific period to have what we have today. Yeah, that's the crazy part that you really have lived through that whole piece of coming back from the war and you were injured then when you were out you had to hide it because you know the society was not a approval of the war you were just doing your job at that point it wasn't right. that right. you were making a political political statement exactly as you mentioned during the documentary uh right. and then right. having to live through life uh, with those sort of memories behind really slows you down the, the reason I walked, I started, I started teaching PTSD 30 years ago when I came to terms with my trauma after decades of suffering and silence. And then I had this epiphany when I finally was diagnosed with PTSD and they explained it to me. It was the first time something made sense to me. And at that point, I realized, you know, wow, this is this is important. This is this is a game changer. Um, for an entire generation, I wasn't at that point thinking about the world. I was thinking about, wow, for us, for my generation, uh, this is a game changer because now something is making sense to me. Uh, then I began, uh, I took my artwork, my post-trauma artwork, uh, on the road and I began teaching it. So for the last 30 years, I've been teaching PTSD long before it was, uh, you know, fashionable. Long before P, yeah, long before it was a household word, I was driving around the country with a van full of, of post-trauma artwork, talking to anybody who would listen. I would sleep in the van uh, next to my artwork because I, I just didn't have any money, but it, I felt it was so important. And I've been doing this traveling and this kind of one-man army scenario uh, with artwork uh, made by traumatized soldiers and myself and I've been doing this and I I, I realize you know I'm, I'm, I'm now gonna I'm gonna be 73 now uh, I realized that you know time's running out and I realized I was reaching everyone embraced it when they were there within the lecture hall or within my exhibit uh, but I needed to reach a larger audience and I needed people to pay attention to me uh, so I decided that you know as an old man I'm, I'm gonna walk across New York State 
and 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 that's the concept behind it. You know, let's see how far we get. I never thought I'd finish, but I did. <laughs> well, and, and you know, again, he, you know, Frank just says, "Oh, I walked across New York State again, zigzagging, seven hundred and fifty miles." I don't know many younger people, but let's also go back to the point that you have damaged legs from the world from from your experience during Vietnam. I mean, this is. Uh, he, while he's very healthy, this is not somebody who has perfect legs or who has not been injured because of his uh, service. No, I, I have a prosthetics in, in one of my legs. I have a bullet in my spine uh, that can't be touched and it's caused nerve damage over the years. Um, I'm constantly in some kind of a physical therapy scenario. Um, I've been shot in my legs, hips and knees. Um so, you know, I, it, it was a struggle. It was hard. And, and, you know, when I started, the weather wasn't too bad, but then the Arctic vortex hit, you know, that, that blast of Arctic air, um, it was sub-zero weather and it was 80 mile an hour winds. Buffalo, where I started in Buffalo, they have a system of these gigantic uh, floating, I don't know, tanks. They're metal, they're chained up, and they keep the ice at bay on Lake Erie from coming into the city of Buffalo. Well, the 80-mile-an-hour winds broke these, these, this barrier, and, and they all floated away. And there was an 18-foot-high wall of ice approaching the city of Buffalo that came within feet of their beltway around the city. Wow. And that's how cold it was. The Niagara River was, was frozen. Niagara Falls was frozen and uh, and that's how I started the walk and you know it was hard enough doing it not you know then the then the the cold weather just made it that exponentially harder so but then eventually the weather broke you know and uh, it got better and better and about the time I reached New York City it was it was shirt sleeves <laughs> did you, was there ever a point during that, those cold days that you doubted the ability to to do it or you just knew you were going to push through yeah, you know, I had a, I had a great team behind me. Um, besides the camera crew, that those poor guys, they put themselves out there. Um, they didn't walk every day, but you know, once a week they'd catch up to me, and we'd film and and we'd go into a shelter together. But I had a walk with Frank uh, support team on the ground. So two years before the walk, so the, the the documentary is five years in the making. So two years ago, I walked. But two years before that, I started the project and I spent I visited each county, 35 counties in New York State. I visited twice and I visited all the elected officials. I visited all the VSOs, the veteran service offices of each county. I visited all the uh, local hospitals and I let them know what I was going to be doing. They thought I was crazy. They didn't think I'd come back. But I, then I came back again. And so I reinforced it. I'm coming through next year. I'm coming through. Be, you know, look out for me because I'm going to show up at your doorstep. And so that said, the Walk with Frank support team, uh, we rented a motorhome for them and uh, they stayed in a motorhome and they would travel around with my art exhibit and they would travel around uh, setting up lectures. Um, and so while I was doing the walking, I would walk into, for instance, I would walk into uh, Oneonta and there'd be something already set up for me. You know, there'd be a parade, mm -hmm. there'd be a lecture, there'd be a dinner, a fundraiser for local veteran organizations. Um, I spoke at two dozen school districts. Um, and so that was always fun. So I had a great support team. So 
whenever I had those to answer your question, whenever I had those down days where, you know, this is tougher than I thought, um, they boosted me up. They were there. They were there to remind me of the importance of what I was doing, the importance of, of reaching out to and giving a voice to those that, that can't speak for themselves. Um, and, and so, uh, I had, I had loving people that, you know, and amazingly, amazingly enough, most of my, my walk with Frank support team, right from the legal aspects to, uh, advisory to, uh, boots on the ground, uh, were from my childhood. So after, after I went to my 50, like five years ago, I went to my 50 year high school reunion and everyone heard about what I was doing and they stepped forward and they came forward and said, I'd like to be a part of that. And they volunteered their services. So we had people uh, around New York state and uh, not only traveling, but we had, you know, people up in Rochester and Oneonter and Albany um, offering, you know, their services in some way. So it was a group. It was a, a kind of a family childhood Bayshore event that, that, pulled it all together. So on those dark days and those cold, bitter days, uh, I always had a support team to, to boost me. Yeah, no, I remember that first, one of the first nights for one of your fundraisers with uh, our, our mutual friend, Danielle uh, Antra, yeah. right, at the, the medium, and, you know, raising funds. And I was like, how is this guy going to do it? And, you know, meeting you <laughs> at, at that time, I was like, all right, <laughs> he thinks he can do it. God bless him. I'll, I'll support it and, you know, always be there to support it. And to watch the documentary was so inspiring. I, mean, I, I think I texted you right after I watched it uh, because I couldn't make it that, that Wednesday. I was on the way to come to support you. In now, how can other people watch the video? That's the important part is not only us talking about it, but how can we watch the documentary currently? We've just finished this week. We just finished up a week-long virtual event, uh, a lot like yourself, a lot of people couldn't make it to, to the premiere, the New York premiere. And so a lot of people uh, were same as you wanted to, you know, how can we watch this or how can I tell a friend about it? So we had an online virtual event, a week long event that ended yesterday from July 4th through July 11th with a talk like we're doing now, an open forum uh, for people to get on on the uh, the link, the Zoom link, and and ask questions and talk to us. So right now um, it's offline. So um, we we're this week and next week we're in Orlando, Florida, screening the film. In August we're in Denver, Colorado. Um, we're speaking with uh, the month of September. We're going to be in. Uh, we're actually, I'm very honored that we're going to be the poster boy film for suicide prevention in the Dallas Fort Worth area in Texas. And so uh, they're going to screen our film down there uh, with a lot of support for suicide prevention. So uh, we're excited about that. Um, we're in the works with the University of, of California. Um, so right now you just can't get on, but it'll be seen periodically throughout this upcoming year, um, on September 23rd, Westfield Malls, uh, one of the biggest malls in the country, they have 33 malls, they're sponsoring a Walk with Frank Day on September 23rd. And um, this is kind of an amazing event. We're bringing back drive-in movie theaters. They have purchased 
a five-story high screen. And they're putting it up in the parking lot of Westfield Malls. And they're cording off an entire half of the parking area. And they're making it a drive-in movie theater for a Walk with Frank day. It's also going to be screening inside the mall that day. Uh, this is in Bayshore, Westfield Malls in Bayshore. And there's also going to be a veteran art exhibit um, hosted by, by Westfield Malls. Our sponsors are J.C. JCPenney's. Uh, Macy's will be involved. Uh, a lot of elected officials will be there. Um, and so there'll be tables of outreach programs set up in the mall area, uh, kind of towards the back. If anyone is, knows uh, South Shore Mall, uh, towards Dick's Sporting Goods, towards the back of the mall, mm-hmm. that whole area will be outreach programs for uh, mental health, suicide prevention, uh, Warrior Ranch, any number of, of, of outreach programs. So people on Long Island and anywhere on Long Island, it'll be advertised beginning in September. Uh, Mark this day on your calendar, September 23rd at the Westfield Mall in Bayshore. Yep. No, and and we'll keep pushing it out. You know, if you want to send me all the links to so anybody who's local, I mean, I do have listeners that I know of in Texas and things like that in Colorado. So, you know, we'll just keep pushing it out. And definitely okay. September 23rd, I'm going to put it on my calendar and we'll make sure yep. that we're there uh, yep. to support. Well, we're talking we to uh, Senator John Brooks, mm-hmm. uh, and he is the chairperson for the Senate uh, Committee on Veterans Affairs to have a screening in Nassau County. Um, hopefully we're approaching Hofstra and maybe Hofstra will host it. Yeah, Hofstra's and very good. And Senator Shelley Mayer, the chairperson for education for New York State uh, in Westchester. So we're hoping to have Another screening in the Mid-Hudson Valley in Westchester area uh, coming uh, in the next couple of months. So we have a lot of things in the works. Um, Literally, the film has been out less than a month. It was only released the end of June. And we've got so much feedback from all over the country already. Um, IMDB has us listed uh, on their site so people can go on and and read about reviews uh, on the film. So uh, if anyone has seen my film, please go on IMDB and, and post okay. a, a comment, please. Yep. Now, you had mentioned about your Art of, uh, art of War uh, that you created uh, years ago. Can you explain to us just how that, how, how that came about and how that's helped you? <clears throat> yes, the Art of War. Uh, when I came to terms with my trauma, um, when I was first diagnosed with PTSD after decades of being Vietnam War syndrome and depression. And they finally came to explain to me about PTSD. And I had an epiphany and I began to relive all my experiences. Uh, I began to, something made sense to me. So I began to relive all my experiences and the kind of the, the movement of my hands helped to get my story out. And I began doodling and doodling and each doodle had a story uh, then one day, without any prior training in my life, I picked up a paintbrush and, and a canvas, and I began making paintings, oil paintings, um, and I created this art. And in the beginning, I hid it away. Now, I've been conditioned, being a Vietnam veteran, you know, we were conditioned not to express our feelings and emotions. And this artwork was very powerful, and, and it told my story. It was like my journal or my diary, I, except instead of using words, I was creating pictures. 
And so I wasn't conditioned to be open yet. And so I hid my artwork away and uh, I it wasn't meant to see the light of day ever. Um, and then eventually it was discovered and um, I was dubbed the closet artist by the local newspapers. And then I realized how important it was. It was we were documenting. I was documenting the emotional history of our country in art. It was it was it told a story of uh, this generation of men who were shunned by society and left to their own devices and now began creating artwork. Um, I began searching out other artists, other Vietnam artists, veterans that were creating artwork. A group of veterans were getting together in Chicago and showing their artwork. So I flew to Chicago with my artwork. And um, it was the beginning of what is now a national museum, the National Veterans Art Museum. And that was the beginning of, of what is today a very famous museum. Uh, my artwork is part of the permanent collection there. And uh, we were one of the beginning artists. With that, I began teaching. And I began, again, putting my artwork in my van and traveling around the country and anyone who would listen. Um, so I created this, this curriculum, the art, the art of War. That was my first curriculum. It was called The Art of War. And I, students would come through my exhibit and they'd see this very powerful artwork. I mean, they really didn't need me to speak. They could look at the artwork yeah. and go, you know, that's kind of powerful. You know, this guy's had a difficult day. Um, and, but then I would, I would back it up with a lecture. I'd do some workshops. And so I started the art of war. It, it caught on. Everyone embraced it. Uh, every school I went to recommended it to another school. Uh, it took on a life of its own. And, um, then at one point I realized that if I'm going to teach PTSD, I wanted to, I wanted to get the 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 viewpoint of the former enemy. You know what was their PTSD and how did they fare? So I went back to Southeast Asia uh, at 65 years old, and I lived in grass huts and rice paddies all over again, like I did 50 years ago. Um, I documented on a daily blog, which is still online. People can read about that, and I would compare. I would take pictures, show pictures of then with me on the Mekon River, for instance, and I would show a picture of me as an old man on the Mekon River. And uh, I, would, I would visit villages, bombed out villages, and um, I visited, you know, there's still bomb craters there, you know. I was in B-52 bomb craters that you could put your house in. They're still there. That's, that's how badly bombed out uh, Southeast Asia was from the Vietnam and the secret wars in Laos. And, um, and so... Again, students followed me as a lesson plan, and so that became popular. Then that was part of the Art of War curriculum. As I progressed, um, Bayshore High School worked with me on a, a new curriculum called The Experience of the American Soldier, and that's the one I feature in the film. Uh, that is very, very reality-based. So, so I have, I've collected letters. I go to auctions and I collect letters from Vietnam. You know, when a, mm -hmm. when a veteran dies and they put the, the estates up for sale, I buy their letters from war. And, and I have maybe a thousand letters of soldiers writing home from Vietnam. And so that tells a story. That's the mental yeah. aspect of the story. And in this curriculum, students will compare my letters with uh, letters from Civil War soldiers. And World War One and World War Two soldiers and Korea and right up to today, Afghanistan and Iraq. And students would read and compare. 
And the, the concept of the curriculum is endearing, endearing messages. What, what do you find similar, you know? And it's always the mental aspect of it. You know, I'm scared. I want to go home. I don't think I can do this. It starts with the Civil War. It's, it, it's fascinating to read a Civil War letter and read a Vietnam letter and read an Iraq letter. And it says the exact same thing. It, it's, it's amazing that, you know, and students get this concept of, wow, this is, this is really powerful. Um, and then they write, you know, and then they either go through my exhibit or, or they're followed by workshops and, and we teach PTSD and we talk about it. Uh, and it's it, that I took across New York State with me and two dozen school districts are now using it. And it's called the experience of the American soldier. And it's not just about soldiers, you know, and I try to show that in the film that, um, you know, you don't have to be you don't have to be a soldier to be traumatized, you know. We've all been we've all been traumatized in some way at some point in our lives. And, and you know that. Yeah. And that's you know? the, that's the part that we talk about. And that was the one question <clears throat> I have. So I know you, you mentioned you were diagnosed with depression. We use that word too often, like as a society, you know, I'm depressed now until recently. I, I might have used that word differently as well until I experienced real depression where I couldn't move and right. through through my own stuff that I've worked through. But that's the thing is, but at least now we're able to start speaking about it. And Correct. Because when you came through it, and even people today with mental illness or mental challenges that they're trying to overcome, we generally go to that self-isolation piece because as a society, we have a lot of words that we want to use that basically push us into that corner to stay in the corner. How do you overcome some of those things? I personally if people ask me, can you, can you cure PTSD? You know, uh, I don't believe you can cure it. I, I advocate and I teach embracing our trauma. You know, what happened to you? Well, it's, it's a part of you for the rest of your life. So why fight it? You know, and try to try to embrace it, try to make it a part of you. Uh, for instance, me going back to Southeast Asia, you know, 50 years ago, I would have never thought about going back to, and, and, you know, me going back to Vietnam. And when I did, it was, there was such beautiful, gracious people. These are people I, I wanted to kill. You know, it, does, it didn't make sense to me anymore. So, so I've embraced that. So when I talk to a young Iraq or Afghanistan veteran and I say, imagine going back to Iraq, you know, years from now. And it's a tourist attraction, you know, and people are selling tickets to show where your friend blew his legs off. You know, that's going to happen. It's going to happen. Someday it's going to happen. And try to envision that and try to embrace now the concept. Wow. You know, it's just another day. You know, it's just another day. It's not a good day for me, but it's another day, um, you know, and try to embrace your trauma as opposed to fighting it. You know, we, we medicate ourselves and uh, we medicate young veterans. And I was medicated heavily for two decades. Um, and, and I'm against that. I don't, I don't see doing that, uh, to a certain point when it's absolutely needed. Yes. To calm down. Yes. Um, but I, I'm more about embracing your trauma, learn about yourself, learn about your triggers, learn about, you know, your personal feelings and emotions and, and, and move forward with that concept, you know, as opposed to sit there and go into a psychiatrist or a clinic or a group therapy and expect to be, cured 
Yep. Now, I, I think that's part of the answer. That's one of the questions I wanted to ask you about resources, uh, because that's important. A lot of people don't know resources and, right. you know, painting became a resource, but you found that on your own. And I know on Long Island, we have one of the best programs in the world, you know, the Joseph P. Dwyer peer to peer where there are therapists and things like that. But right. I know when I've done that type of work, it, that peer-to-peer seems to move a lot quicker than talking to a therapist because of sometimes it's because we don't like that, that, that those titles that they all have. Exactly. Yeah. The title, once you say I'm a, I'm a doctor, this or clinician, that, you know, they're tired of it. You know, these, these veterans are angry. There is a part of them are angry. They've been taught to be angry. You know, part of being a soldier, especially a foot soldier, a boot on the ground, um, you're taught to hate. I mean, if you like the guy, why would you want to kill him? You know, it, it, that, that doesn't make sense. So you learn to dehumanize. You learn to dehumanize your, your opponent. Um, and in, in so doing so, you dehumanize people in general. Uh, and you learn to be angry. And that anger, you know, is carried all veterans. I don't care what they say, have a place where they store their anger. There's a, there's an angry place in every veteran for whatever reason, whatever they've been through, uh, whatever they've lost, you know, getting past that, that anger, you know? And so the label doctor or clinician, you know, invokes, you know, the same old story. I've been here before, you know, I talked to the other guy last week, you know, you know, I've been doing this for a couple of years now and I don't feel any better, you know, you know, expecting to be cured. I, I don't I don't believe in that. I don't I believe it. I believe post-trauma, PTSD, whatever you want to label it is a natural inherent uh, characteristics of human beings. You think about your grandmother who passed away and you get teary eyed that, you know, that's 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 a natural inbred feeling in all human beings since the beginning of time. We're just putting labels on it now. And so uh, I believe, you know, if it's part of us, why try to get rid of it? Why don't we just keep it, you know, and learn to move forward, you know, with it in our back pocket and and embrace it? Yeah, I always talk about moving the energy differently. So, you know, obviously the situations that you were through, I don't ever want to imagine them. But and it sounds like you've been able to do that, move that energy differently. You know, not that it didn't happen, but how you can go back to, you know, Southeast right. Asia and be able to accept that and really receive the, the blessings of being able to see that in a, in a better way. Right, right. And, and, and it, was, it was amazing that, you know, they, they have dealt with their trauma openly. You know, I went to the killing fields in Cambodia, which, you know, not to get into a history lesson, but, you know, the bombings opened up the, the toppling of the of the government from the American bombing uh, campaign, you know, opened the door to the Camarouge, which opened the door to genocide. I stood in a room of 9000 human skulls. They're just piled up in a room and you stand there in awe, uh, you know, and that's an exhibit to them. They're sh- they're they're openly showing they take you to on, on a, a walk of, you know, kind of a walkabout in the fields. And, you know, after a rain, the bones are still sticking up in the ground, you know, so they openly show their trauma in Hanoi, uh, the, the northern part of Vietnam, which was at once North Vietnam. Um, they have 
the, the reunification museum and they show genocide openly, but committed by both sides, by the Americans, you know, interrogation techniques where, a, where uh, uh, you have two Viet Cong and you throw one out of a helicopter and, you know, they, have, they show things like that, uh, you know, the Malay massacre. And they openly display their trauma. Here, we don't talk about it. We, we, the stigma surrounding it, we don't like to talk about mental health here in this country or in, in, in the Western world. Right. We don't like to talk about, about mental health. You know. So I begin on my walk, no matter where I went to a lecture, of course, the people knew who I was. I'm Frank Romeo, but I still start every lecture with, my name is Frank Romeo and I have mental illness. I state it. Matter of factly, we have to say it. You have to say the words out loud. You can't keep it sweeping it under the rug. You have to begin to say the words mental illness out loud and start the conversation. Yeah, I think that's a, right. You have to own your story and whatever got you here. That's not a lot of the things that you've done in the past is not who you are today. It's brought you here along this path, along this journey. Now, you. you yeah. So your journey has taken you a lot of places. I mean, you were a winner of the New York State Liberty Medal, which is a, the highest civilian honor in, in New York State. And, you know, you're helping people. And I know that that's the, really the, the, the prize. That's the medal for you is being able to help, as you said, not only Vietnam veterans release some of this stuff, but also the current people who are coming back. Because that's our big transition as we come as you, not, I, I have never done that. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, a veteran. But as people have transitioned from being uh, in the military to outside the military, it's that hard transition because you go from I hate you to you have to love everybody. You're back in society. Right, and right, right. It, it's, it's a just people, civilians cannot imagine. Well, maybe now they can imagine. I think first responders now and, and you know, coming off a pandemic, you have you have an idea of like, you know, uh, what's going on with police and, and you know, it, it, you have an idea like there's a war going on around us. So we're not oblivious to it anymore. You know, uh, the Vietnam War was the first war fought on the six o'clock news. You know, every night in the 60s, you sat all of America sat down in front of the TV and they would give the body counts. That's how they that's how they determined if you were winning the war by body counts uh, and they would show what was going on there. So it was kind of reality. The first reality show was the Vietnam war. Well, the pandemic was another reality show, you know, it's on the news, it's in our face, uh, you know, so people can now get a concept of, you know, that ICU doctor and nurse, you know, in there with, with, you know, countless people dying every day has to come home and make dinner for their daughter or son, you know, and still, and still try to maintain their life. So we're getting a glimpse of, I think a glimpse of what it's like to be in war. Um, of course, you know, no one's shooting at you, but you know, the disease is attacking you. Um, you know, so that's kind of the, the closest thing I can relate to associating with the, the feeling of what it's like and the transition, you know, and coming home and everything has to be good and you have to smile for your children and, you know, and, and hug your wife. And, you know, so it's, it, it's, 
it's exponentially so much harder when people don't understand. And then you get to the family unit. I talk about the family unit in my film and um, the biggest, the biggest advantage, the biggest cure for mental illness is the family unit. And without it, you're not going to survive. You need to, you need to have a family. And that looks different for different people in the homeless shelters. You know, I make the reference that these men help each other in the homeless. They're homeless. You know, you have one homeless veteran uh, ironing the clothes of another homeless man who just got a job interview. You know, he's going out to get a job and helping him, sewing buttons on his clothes, you know, and helping each other. That's their family unit. And so that's going to help them to move forward. So you need the family unit and embracing the family. And uh, without the family, um, you're not you're, you're lost. You need it in any kind of mental health. Yeah, but you, you always need that support, and, and you, uh, the family could be everything. As you said, these are not biological together. They're not married, but they're together as a team, and by working together as a team is really what, what let, lets us all. Now, I've taken a lot of your time, and there's one quote, that, as you were saying before, that I think we all should focus on. It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men or, or people, to be correct. It was a quote by Frederick Do- Douglass during the Civil War. So I think as long as we could do that, we'll always be successful. You've given us so many gems, not only of your story, and everybody should try to follow, walk with Frank, and try to find an opportunity to see this film. As Frank had mentioned, September 23rd, let's get out there and give Frank some support, but also the support for the film, because there's important pieces of that film that everybody needs to see, not only if you're going to support a veteran, but support our family, our, our communities, in mental health because we all experience it. Those days that you come home and just yell at the kids because you're frustrated, that's a mental health issue. It's not as traumatic as PTSD, but remember, we all have coping mechanisms. And so, Frank, what's the one message to end this? Uh, You know, if you can do one one message. One message. Um, I'll leave you with the thought. Um, we, we are, life is a series of rebounds. We're all going through from one rebound to another and, uh, and dealing with it. And we are all survivors in one way or another. We've all become survivors out of default. Whether you like it or not, you've survived something. And with that term survivor comes the word responsibility. And, and I think uh, being a survivor, you have a responsibility to reach out, to lend a helping hand to those that, that haven't progressed as far as you. Uh, and so just don't be a survivor. Be, be responsible in, in your surviving uh, and, and help someone that uh, hasn't, hasn't survived yet. Hasn't found the ways to survive that. I love it. And, you know, I'm not sure how much you follow. I do a lot of R's because I always believe there's an R in your heart. So I love the fact that you said responsibility and that's, you know, really what it is. And that was part of my story. When I was going through my challenges, I was told by whatever I was told, you know, I say a higher power, it's not my time. And that's why I've embraced my mental illness and to make sure that people don't get there because I've been able to overcome the challenges and I'm not the person I was two years ago even. Uh, I didn't waste two years of my life. I have used that to embrace it. So thank you so much for the responsibility, for your walk, and just being you. Uh, you know, I can't wait to see you again live 
and uh, you know we'll catch each other during the summer. But I, I know I, I have a message with a barfly. Um, ah. say, uh, our friend, our friend Stacy. Uh, when I was talking to her earlier this week, she said, "Don't mention my name," which I was like, "I told you I'm going to mention your name." But uh, she said, "Tell him Barfly sends her love, and uh, we will definitely connect again, sir. You know, we're we're really a couple miles from each other. Anything that I could do to support you, not only in this effort, but uh, you know, I, I I work on the island, do helping veterans, and I'll always be there to support you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it." Peace out. God, God bless. Right, bye Thank bye. you. I am really glad that you're enjoying the show, and I hope you follow us on all the podcast hosting sites, as well as Facebook, Peace, Love, and Bring a Bat. Or you can follow me, Uncle Dave, David Chemetsky, at Facebook, Instagram, Clubhouse, and www.davidchemetsky.com. I also would enjoy for you to contact me if you want to just have some feedback. You need somebody to talk to at peace, love, bring a bat at gmail.com. Well, my friends, today's journey has come to a close. I hope the seeds of peace and love continue to grow for each one of you. Remember the peace and love surround you that will assist you to rise again. And don't forget to bring a bat for what you believe in. Namaste.